just a little help on your singing technique. Uh, since I'm sitting up here listening to all of you, some of those songs were pretty high, weren't they? You got to learn how to drop it down one octave and sing with a smile on your face, not straining to hit those high notes. That was free. Everything else is going to cost you. With that said, please open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. And today we'll read two passages of scriptures. We talk about my absolute favorite subject in all the world, and that is the doctrine of the imputation of Christ's right righteousness. Our sin is imputed to him. His righteousness is imputed to us. And I'm going to hope to convince you why that is absolutely the most important thing you can know. It'll make you a different person through and through. If you believe it from the crown of your head to the soles of your feet, you can't help yourself but be far more uh, at peace, at rest, less driven, less anxious, more motivated with the right motives. So please follow along as I read from Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus the Lord, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then one verse from the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, and verse 21. If you want to memorize just one verse to help you sort of summarize the gospel, although it's very difficult to do that with just one verse, but this one comes close. Paul says, For our sake he made him to be sin." who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to talk about this liberating truth. And Father, I pray that you will help us understand how much we need a robust doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. 
And we pray that as we consider these things, you will deepen our understanding of just how much good news the gospel really is. And we pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would give us understanding. And I pray that you would help me communicate this in a way that makes it um, easier for people to get it, to understand it, to see it, perceive it, grasp it. And I know that I am utterly dependent upon you for any of those things to happen. We pray you'll glorify yourself today as we consider these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What I'm doing now is a series of messages on gospel renewal. And before we can be renewed by the gospel, we have to understand what the gospel is. And what I'm preaching today is not everything you can say about the gospel, but is one of the most important things you can say about the gospel. And that is the imputation of Christ's righteousness. By the way, this issue never stops being controversial. It is controversial even today uh, as to whether or not when we are justified by faith alone, whether or not we receive Christ's perfect record of obedience to ourselves or whether there's a combination of that plus something else, which I call a Christ plus gospel, which is no gospel at all. The moment you tinker with grace, the moment you add anything to it, one iota, one jot, one tittle, you no longer have grace. You have works every single time. And so in order to defend this, let me give you one of Martin Luther's theses on the gospel, uh, or thesis. Christ did not only die in our place, but he lived a perfect life in our place. Therefore, we do not simply get forgiveness for sins, but also complete acceptance with his perfect past and record now in God's sight, they become ours. And so this is, in my judgment, the liberating truth for us to have a depth understanding of the gospel in order for us to pursue holiness with all vigor uh, because of that particular doctrine. If there's one thing I love in life, it is the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And this is the biblical truth that liberates me and you from the crushing burden of ever having to stand before God in my own place with my own merit. Nothing would terrify me more than ever having to stand before the judgment of God with all, the only thing to plea is how well I've done and how well I've lived, even as a professing Christian. Uh, that would terrify me. That would bring me nightmares. Because the more you understand the gospel, the more you see your sin, and the more you see your sin, the more you see your need for the gospel, which, by the way, is good news, not good advice. The gospel is not addressed to you as things you ought to do in order to win the approval of God or find acceptance with him or have him smile over you. Rather, the gospel is news about someone else who has accomplished something for you that you could never do yourself. Salvation is always a rescue operation. It's always deliverance. It's always of God. It is always his doing. And for us to truly grasp it and understand it, 
We've got to understand these dynamics that I want to talk to you about today. Simply stated, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace in which he pardons all of our sin, accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and is received by faith alone, what Calvin called naked faith. It presents nothing. It simply receives the covering of the righteousness of Christ. In justification, the believer rests on Christ alone for salvation and by faith receives his righteousness, or to say the same thing at greater length, and this comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith, Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their Uh, righteousness but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith which faith they have not of themselves it is the gift of God I mean we got nothing to boast in we have we are absolute total receptors of salvation we contribute nothing I think it was George Whitfield who said this first We contribute nothing to our salvation but our sin. That's it. Everything is done in our place. Christ is our substitute, both for our sin and our righteousness. And so the the, uh, vocabulary of justification uh, is from the law courts. It is a forensic term. Perhaps you've heard the term forensic in all the CSI shows that you watch on television where they're always going to the lab and doing all kinds of tests to find evidence compelling enough to arrest a person and bring them uh, before the bar of the court. Justification is a legal term. It is objective. It is something God declares, not something we do. It is an event. It's not a process. It occurs as God declares us by faith in Christ alone to be right with him forever and forever we stand under his favor. Our standing is under grace. But everything he does to justify us is something outside of us. Luther called it an alien righteousness. But before I go too far, I want to talk about the distinction between understanding justification as imputation or infusion. Now remember, Martin Luther's context was that of a Roman Catholic. He was a Roman Catholic priest. And he was teaching the book of Romans and also the book of Galatians, lecturing on Galatians, until he had his tower experience. And there's controversy as to when and where that actually occurred. But he came to see, he used to hate the term in the Bible, the righteousness of God. That term irritated him to no end. And why was that? Because Luther saw that what God demanded was righteousness and that he could never produce it. 
He couldn't provide it. So he understood the gospel not to be good news uh, at all, but to be something that terrified him and consistently dogged his conscience. And he felt his guilt. He could never confess his sins enough. And he was struggling under anxiety and fear before the wrath of God until he had that tower experience and he understood for the first time in his entire life that the righteousness God demands of us, God also gives to us by grace. Something accomplished by another, an alien outside of us righteousness. Righteousness, we're going to talk about that in a minute in a little more detail to help you sort of gather what that is. But that was Luther's fundamental breakthrough. Now, in the Catholic Church, our Roman friends, there was a, there was a division uh, in the Reformation over the rediscovery of the gospel as to whether or not righteousness is infused in us or whether it is imputed to us. The Roman church claimed, still does to this day, that righteousness is infused into us. At baptism, we are infused with the seed or grain of grace or righteousness. They called all of those things in the catechism of that church. And so it is infused in us. And then we are responsible through the use of the means of grace. And, of course, the church has seven sacraments. And through those sacraments, mainly in this life, penance sort of moves to the fore. Once you're baptized, you receive that grace. And then your life is developing that grace into a perfect righteousness whereby you can present yourself to God as one who has lived up to everything God requires. Of course, most people who are honest would tell you, I'm a, I'm a little ways from that. So I'm going to have to spend some time in purgatory. And people are going to have to pray for me. And out of the treasury of merit, we're going to have to come up with some righteousness enough that God will accept me and receive me. And so put it simply, justification for a Roman Catholic um, Magisterium, the teachers of the Church of Rome, is sanctification, what we call sanctification. You're justified by your sanctification. Let me also say that in some reform circles, people have also fallen back perilously close to this particular doctrine, that we at baptism receive justification, but we can lose it if we don't develop it. Now, that is infusion. That's the concept of you're justified by your sanctification to the level and degree that you produce righteousness. You are either accepted by God or not. The Protestant Reformation was all about a different thing. It was about this. It's not something infused within you, but rather something imputed to you from the outside. Christ, by virtue of his perfect, perpetual obedience to everything God required, wasn't simply for himself to qualify himself as our Savior, but was a righteousness produced by him given to us. It is a status, a standing. It is something objective to us. 
And so the reason why I can hold my head high today, the reason why I don't fear death, the reason why I'm not destroyed by my failure and sin is because I know at the right hand of God in heaven, there my righteousness is and forever will be. And Christ has my name written upon his hands. And so objectively outside of me, nothing I produce Nothing I add to, nothing I develop, simply is given to me as a gift by grace. Now, the charges against that are, well, that's just legal mumbo-jumbo. That's just legal fiction. No, it isn't. Not at all. And one of the things I want to communicate to you in this message is why it's not a fictionary righteousness. It is a real righteousness as much as if you yourself did it yourself. So being united with Christ by faith, organically connected to him, his righteous, perfect record is now mine. And my damning, horrible, gross, heinous sin became his. He never became a sinner, but he became a sin substitute, uh, propitiating God's wrath against us uh, by taking it upon himself. So now I want to get into a little bit more of this nature of the righteousness and what I mean when I talk about righteousness. How do we understand this absolutely radical teaching that righteousness is given to me by grace. I want to show you how totally radical this is. Righteousness, the word itself, doesn't compute for us that much in the um, year 2023. Is that the year we're in? I remember when I was a kid, I had a startling revelation. I added up how old I would be when the year 2000 came and uh, that I would be 47 years old, and I said, that is so old. It's really not. It's prime of life, right? But uh, I can remember fearing that. But in the year 2023, people don't really traverse that much in the idea of righteousness. Doesn't commute, uh, commute to, uh, compute to us. We don't connect with it that well. It's a negative concept. Paul's usage, however, is very positive. Righteousness, write this down, never forget this. Righteousness, this is the best definition I've ever read, is a validating performance record. For a short term, I would use the word resume. You ever look for a job? You ever had to build a resume, put a resume together, send it over to Susan Donovan, have her check it out? She's a professional resume person. But what do you do in your resume? Well, you try not to lie, but you do <laughs> cast yourself in the most positive terms. You show why you're worthy to be considered for a particular job, how in having that job you would be a good fit for that job because of your qualifications, because of all of the uh, things you bring to bear upon the position from your life, your experience, etc., your references. Uh, nobody ever puts down somebody who is going to, uh, you know, diss you. It's always positive references, and you turn that in to be considered. And so your resume is a validating performance record. 
And so we submit our resume to people who we want to be accepted by, who want to be hired. What Jesus did for us is he performed for us a positive, validating performance record that opens doors beyond belief. So when you look for a job, you send in your resume. In essence, your resume is your validating uh, performance record. And in essence, it says, I am worthy of the position. Accept me for the job. And if your performance record is good enough, and if you're good enough, doors open and you receive a job. Another example would be advanced degrees, transcripts, academic records. These now function for some people as your validating performance record. Uh, everybody has a performance record that we rely upon ourselves to validate us. It is the reason why every religion, every culture, everywhere in the world believes it is the same with God. If there is a God, it's going to have to have, a, a, and you're going to have a spiritual connection with him, it is same, the same. It's not vocational, it's not academic, but it's moral, a moral record. God is holy. God gave us the law, the Ten Commandments. And so this is how you get to heaven. You find enlightenment. Here's how you connect to the divine. Your performance record, you develop a righteousness, you offer it, if it's good enough, you're worthy, and God accepts it. And Paul comes along and says, but now for the first time in the history of the world, as well as the last time in history, an absolutely unheard of spirituality has come. An absolute unheard of approach to God has been revealed. And what is that? He says there's not just good people not just a good record, but a divine righteousness, a perfect record. And it is available to anyone as a gift. And it comes to us when we uh, have it. It is the end of the struggle for validation, for your worth and acceptability. Uh, and it is the uniqueness what sets apart the Christian gospel, which makes it good news in the first place. This is why the gospel is such good news. Because you are given the validating performance record of another, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But the gospel is that God develops perfect righteousness. He offers it to us, and by it alone we are accepted in the beloved. It has never been heard of before. It sets Christianity apart and is the reversal of what every other religion, philosophy of life, ever offers to any person. Now, you might be sitting there and you're saying, well, Pastor Tim, I appreciate what you have to say about a guy like Martin Luther. You know, I heard he's a beast. I heard he's <laughs> uh, crude and all that stuff, but it's an interesting history lesson. But I have to tell you, I have never in my life, you might say, as a secular person or even a person who comes to church, you would say, I have never really suffered over wondering if I'm righteous enough. I don't really try that hard to do what's right. I realize I'm not perfect, but I don't really see 
the point of what you're arguing because I'm not like Martin Luther. My conscience is not tormented. I don't even have guilt. I'm not afraid of anything. I'm very confident in myself. And so your message has nothing to do with me, or does it? My retort and response to that is every single person on the planet is seeking righteousness. Everybody wants it. Validation through your performance record. You may not want the validation from God, but you want validation from somebody outside of you. Every single person is wired this way. Everybody wants it. G.K. Chesterton once made a fascinating observation. He said, every time a man goes to a brothel, if you don't know what that is, ask your mom and dad on the way home, but every man who goes to a brothel is looking for God. That's what Chesterton said. I would uh, challenge him this way. I'd say everybody that goes to the door of a brothel is looking for righteousness. You see, that's how you're wired. That is the imago day in you. Even though fallen, even though we're in a condition of a beautiful estate, that is now ruined, there still retained in, retains in us and remains in us vestiges of that original beautiful estate Adam was before he fell, and part of the image of God in us is we hunger, we thirst, we long for righteousness. As my wife often says to me, you love to be right, don't you? I said, I will fight to the death to be right. And that's a telling statement. That's bad on me, isn't it? So the, the solution we'll get to in a moment, but I want to kind of help you understand this a little more deep, deeply. Um, most Protestants, in theory, would say Luther was pretty close to right, but the words justification by faith no longer evoke in people the same overwhelming sense of joy and uh, gladness and uh, glorious freedom that it gave Luther, the first Protestant. Why? Probably one reason is it's hard for us to see that we are in the same desperate predicament that Luther was in. Quite apart from whether we ought or to or not, how many of us take God and his righteousness so seriously that we live in daily terror that we might be eternally damned? Who of us could say that every day, all day, our life is soured by the fear that God does not love us? Who of us ever thought seriously of giving everything in order to escape the wrath of God and earn salvation by striving to be perfect? If we are to grasp something of the joy and the freedom of justification, we must first translate the desperate, desperate situation to which it speaks into more contemporary terms. When we have done that, then we will speak of what the doctrine itself can mean to us as modern people. Most of us do not try to justify ourselves as the young Martin Luther did, but we have other ways of doing the same thing with the same result. Many of us Americans try to justify ourselves not so much by good works as just by plain 
work. Our work is everything to us. It is our identity. That's why retirement is so hard. That's why I'm scared to quit doing this, huh? No, I'm not. I'll do this as long as I'm able, and you will have me. And the second one may come faster than the first one. But here's what I'm saying to you. We try to justify ourselves by, and we try to have a validating performance record and resume through our work. Our work, work is a good thing. But when absolutized, when work is taken to be the thing, you become a workaholic. You destroy yourself by prioritizing work and you lose relationships in your life because of it. You end up destroying yourself. You end up becoming a difficult person. You're difficult to be with, to be around because you're consumed with work. Hard work and success make us feel that we have worth, that we are worth something and can win for ourselves the approval and admiration of other people we want to feel that way about us. So we work harder and harder and longer and longer, feeling guilty whenever we stop to rest or play. But the very work that is supposed to give our lives meaning becomes a cruel slave driver that does what? A cruel slave driver that turns them into a treadmill. Our work was supposed to give us self-respect. But we are constantly threatened by the fear that we have not performed well enough or climbed high enough, and we're constantly tormented by the dread of failure, the loss of work, or even retirement. Then work that was supposed to have made me a respectable person, a responsible person, takes so much time and energy that we neglect our families, we neglect our friends. It was supposed to win the approval of others, but instead turns them into rivals and opponents to be defeated and dominated. The very work we thought would justify our existence to ourselves and other people becomes self-destructive and alienates us from everyone we care about. So you see, just because you don't believe in guilt, just because you don't care about righteousness, just because you don't go to church or you don't think it's important, or just because you do go to church but you're not all that exercised by it, you're doing it one way or the other, every day. We are looking for something to validate us. A performance record that we can hold up high before ourselves and say, my life matters, my life counts. Now there are other ways that we can do it. If we believe television, many American men and women try to justify themselves by working constantly and frantically to stay young and physically attractive. This is being said by a man who goes to the gym six days a week. Got to repent of that. There is such pressure in our world and culture to be beautiful. How can we ex accept ourselves except and be loved otherwise. Every new wrinkle, every additional pound, every gray hair is a source of anxious concern. If we're constantly preoccupied with ourselves and our lovability, how can we love anyone else or give ourselves to be loved? We offer not ourselves but youth and beauty to be loved. We are so concerned about ourselves that we are not free to love other people. The very quest that was supposed to make me a loving relationship or a marriage work well destroys it curved in on ourselves. 
we want righteousness. We hunger and thirst every single day for righteousness. Some of us take a, another route. <laughs> I've taken this one. All of these I've taken. Some of us try to justify ourselves by being critical of other people, thinking that we, if we can make them look small, we will look big. But the need to run others down itself is a sign of our own insecurity and our desperate need to be able to accept ourselves and be accepted by them. The more we try to build ourselves up by tearing other people down, the more insecure, unlovable, and lonely we become. We are trapped and condemned by the very means by which we thought we could save ourselves. You see, everybody's looking for righteousness, and there's only one righteousness that can provide for you life everything else is death everything else is death the righteousness of Jesus Christ impute means to reckon or to account or to um, actually one of the uh, the Greek word for impute is the word logizomai and you say well what difference does that make it makes a big difference because the beginning of that word is logos which means word. And there was one particular Pauline scholar I like who says, when you, by faith, turn from your sin and extend the empty hand of faith and receive Christ and his righteousness is given to you, God words you to be righteousness. Just as God spoke at the chaos in Genesis 1, 2 and formed and filled the earth and ordered all of it in life by speaking what? the word, when he words you righteous, you are righteous. And that's what your heart hungers for. And I have really good news for you, or not, <laughs> depending on whether you're wanting to hear it. Still others try to justify ourselves by being a good person. However, that is defined in your world. Not so much like Luther, to win God's approval, but rather to convince ourselves of our own worth and to win the love of other people. If I cannot justify myself by being rich or powerful or intellectual or attractive, perhaps I can do it by achieving moral superiority. And so I can virtue signal myself to death before other people, parading my own righteousness is that which validates me. You see, when you get rid of imputation, you're cutting off half of the gospel. For a long time, I myself called myself half saved by grace. I certainly believe that Christ died for my sins. I certainly believe that he went to the cross and bore in his body the shame, guilt, and judgment for my sin and that God's wrath fell on him and that God's wrath was exhausted, as it were, in him as he propitiated, he satisfied God's justice for me at the cross. And I had the negative situation in my life taken care of by Christ's cross work, but I had no positive righteousness. And that's why living the Christian life with no positive righteousness other than your own is misery. <laughs> that's why I often tell you that in your sanctification, it's a really good idea 
to go back and visit your justification all over again because that sets things right. You are delighted and you are loved. So, depending on what is important to us and what is possible to us, all of us spend our lives trying to justify ourselves in one way or another. But whatever the means, the results are always the same. We cannot save ourselves. Our lives are driven, anxious, and guilty no matter how hard we try. We cannot save ourselves or by the respect, love, and acceptance of others, those who look to themselves and try to measure and guarantee their worth by their own achievements destroy themselves, alienate themselves from others, and miss the one way in which their existence can be justified, God's grace. I mean, this is street level, folks. This is everyday life. This is real. And so finally, I know some of you thought I was never going to get there. Finally, how much time we got? Ooh, this may have to be another sermon. What are the benefits or the results or the gifts we receive of being justified by grace alone in Christ alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone. Let me name a couple. First, humility. That's a rare virtue, isn't it? It's like trying to catch smoke in your hand. You ever try to do that? When I was a little kid, we would have a campfire. Of course, there'd be smoke everywhere. We played the game of trying to take our hands and grasp smoke. Only problem is what? The minute you open your hand, Ain't no smoke. It's gone. We try. But one of the wonderful benefits of this understanding is it humbles you. Truly understood, truly grasped by faith, the doctrine of justification not only confronts you and me with how messed up we are, but it also confronts us with our complete inability to restore ourselves to any semblance of what we were meant to be. Humbly admitting the damage sin has done to us is like standing in front of a once beautiful but now decayed, broken down house with no understanding of how to restore it and no tools to do so. There we were, the destruction and decay of sin reaching in every part of our being. The doctrine of justification devastates self-glory. When you truly understand it, let me speak like a Tennessee boy here, when you truly understand it, you ain't nothing. Nothing special. But you're everything in the eyes of God. The only one in the universe who matters has accepted you has validated you, has provided a savior to you. So you, you, you don't have to win every argument. You don't have to make sure that you're the coolest, the best. You know, one, one of the reasons I stayed away from Jesus in high school is because I figured out it might dampen my coolness quotient. I wanted to be absolutely the coolest guy in my class. And I knew I would lose that I would keep it if I avoided Jesus, but if I ever went to him, it's over. I'd become a nerd like everybody else that believed. 
But the truth is, humility, a genuine humility, the doctrine of uh, justification devastates self-glory. It puts a hammer to human pride. It makes a mockery of self-righteousness and the self-aggrandizing, self-justifying arguments that go with it. Proud people don't tend to be peacemakers. Proud people don't suffer well. Proud people don't need, tend to be generous. Proud people think they deserve what is comfortable and tend to hate what is difficult. So, it is a grace to understand what the doctrine of justification says about you, who you were, what you deserved, what your life would have been apart from God's justifying mercies. You can say your hope in life and death is a justifying grace and be proud and boastful at the same time. You can't say that and be proud and boastful at the same time. Pride crushes a believer's fruitfulness. Now, that's just one. I have seven more, but that's all you're going to get today. Things like gratitude, things like freedom. i got to say something about freedom. When this first came home to me, you remember Willa, William Wallace in that movie? What was that movie? Yeah, I knew, I knew the guys in here would know this. And they're hauling him off to burn him, right, at the stake or whatever they're doing. And he screams what? That's what I did when I finally understood justification. I scream freedom. And I want to tell you something. Being a pastor, it's not easy. And especially if you don't believe in the gospel and you don't believe in justification by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, then you're looking at it from people like you sitting out there and you never give me enough. I never get enough of that from you. I never get enough appreciation and love. But the wonderful, beautiful truth is that in Jesus Christ, you are freed up from a lot of the stupid stuff that eats us alive. So, in order to understand the gospel deeply, you've got to understand the doctrine of justification by faith. Nothing gives you what that doctrine gives you. For God made him who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in union with him we become the righteousness of God. The more you believe it, the more humble and free and fearless you become. How about you? Is that where you find your righteousness? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth that we have considered this morning. We pray that it would be liberating and would give us hope in otherwise a desperate and dark world. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to behold the wondrous things you have shown us today. And may we live from forgiveness and righteousness not for forgiveness and righteousness and this we pray in jesus name amen